you are listening to The Great Gatsby by F Scott Fitzgerald This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and it's narrated by Aishwarya Chapter 3 There was some music from my neighbor house through the summer nights In his blue garden men and girls came and went like moths among the whispering and the champagne and the stars At a high tides in the afternoon I watched his guest diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on a hot sand of his beach while his two motor boats slide the water of the sound drawing aqua planes over cataracts of foam on weekend his rolls royce became an omnibus bearing parties to and fro from the city between 9 in the morning and long past midnight while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all the trains and on monday eight servants including an extra gardener toiled all the day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears repairing the ravages of the night before every friday five crates of oranges and lemon arrived from a fruiterer in the new york every monday these oranges and lemon left his back door in a pyramid of purplish half there was machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb at least once a fortnight a corps of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make the christmas tree of gasby enormous garden on buffet table garnished with glistering horses ears spiced big hams crowded against the salad of hankwit design and pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold in a main hall a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another by 7 o'clock the orchestra has arrived no thin five piece affair but a whole pitful of obvious and trombones and saxophones and voices and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums the last swimmers have came in from a beach now and are dressing upstairs the car from new york are parked five deep in the drive and already the halls and saloons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors and is air bobbed in a strange new way and shows beyond the dream of castle the bar is full swing and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual inodo an introduction forgotten on the spot an enthusiastic meeting between women who knew each other's name the light grew brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera voices pitches a higher key laughter is easier minute by minute spilled with prodigality tipped out at a cheerful word the groups change more swiftly swell with new arrivals dissolve and form in the same breath already there was wardener confident girls 
who were here and there among the stouter and more stable, became for a sharp, joyous moment to the center of the group and then excited with triumph glide through the sea catches of the faces and voices and color under the constantly changing light. Suddenly, one of these gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for a courage and moving her hands like Frisco, dances out alone on a canvas platform. A momentary hush, the orchestra leader varies his rhythm oblingly for her and there is a burst of chatter as the enormous new goes around that she is Gilda Grace unsteady from the falls. The party has begun. I believe that on the first night I went to Gatsby house, I was the one of few guests who has actually been invited. People were not invited, they went there. They got into automobile which bore them out to Long Island and somehow they ended up at Gatsby door. Once they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby and after that they were conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with an amusement park. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all, came for the party with the simplicity heart that was its own ticket of admission. I had been actually invited. A coffer in a uniform of Robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employee. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call me on a long before, but a particular combination of circumstances has prevented it, signed J. Gatsby in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people. I didn't know, thought here and there was a face I have noticed on the communicative train. I was immediately struck by the number of young Englishmen dotted about, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, all are talking in low, earnest voice to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something, bonds or insurance or even automobiles. They were at least oncologized, aware of easy money in the vicinity and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabout stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so willingly any knowledge of his moment that I slunk off in the direction of cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposefully and alone. I was on my way to get a roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of marble steps, leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I find it necessarily to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passerby. Hello, I rode, advancing towards her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. 
I thought you might be here, she reported absently as I came up. I remember you lived next door. She held my hand impersonally as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute and gave yours to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps. Hello, they cried together. Sorry you didn't win. That was for the golf tournament. She had lost in the finals the week before. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow. But we met you here about a month ago. You've dyed your hair since then, remarked Jordan, and I started. But the girls have moved casually on, and her remarks were addressed to the premature moon, produced like a super, no doubt, out of a catterer basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, they descended the steps and stormed about the garden. A tray of cocktail floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, each one introduced to us as Mr. Mubble. Do you come to this party often? inquired Jordan of a girl beside her. The last one was the one I met you at, answered the girl in an altered confidence voice. She turned on her companion. Wasn't it for you, Lucy? It was Lucille, too. I'd like to come, Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last, I tore my gown on a chair and he asked me my name and addresses. Inside of a week, I got a package from a courier with a new evening gown in it. Do you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. I was gas blue with lavender beads. Two hundred and sixty-five dollars. There's something funny about a fellow that'll do a thing like that, said the other girl eagerly. He doesn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I inquired. Gatsby. Somebody told me. The two girls in Jordan leaned together confidentially. Somebody told me that they would kill a man once. A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mubbles bent forward and listened eagerly. I don't think it's so much that argued Lucille spectacularly. It's more than that he was a German spy during the war. One of the men nodded in confirmation. I heard that from a man who knew all about him, grew up with him in a Germany, he assured us positively. Oh no, said the first girl. It couldn't be like that, because he was in an American army during the war. As her credulity switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. You looked at him sometimes when he thinks nobody looking at him. I'll bet he killed a man. She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to a romantic speculation. He inspired that there were whispers around him for those who had found little that it was unnecessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, was now being served. 
and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who were spread around a table on another side of the garden. There were three married couples and Jordan's escort, a persistent undergraduate given to Violet Inoda, and obviously under the impression that sooner or later Jordan was going to yield him up her person to greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, this party has preserved a dignified homogeneity and assumed to itself the function of representing the staid nobility of a countryside East Egg condemnation to West Egg and carefully on guard against its spectacular gaiety. Let's get out, whispered Jordan after somehow wasteful and inappropriate half an hour. This is too much to be polite for me. We got up and she explained that we were going to find the host. I had never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The undergraduate nodded in a cynical, melancholic way. The bar where we first met was crowded, but Gatsby was not there. She couldn't find him from the top of the steps and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door and walked in a high Gothic library, panelled with carved English oak and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. A stout, middle-aged man with enormous owl-egged spectacle was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a grey table, staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. What do you think? he demanded imperviously. About what? He waved his hand towards the bookshelves. About that? As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. The ascertained? They are real. The books? He nodded. Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they'd be nice, durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they are absolutely real. Pages and here, let me show you. Taking our skepticism for granted, he rushed to the bookcases and returned with volume one of Stoddard Lecture. See, he cried triumphantly. It's a bona fide piece of printed matter. It fooled me. This fella, a regular Belasco. It's a triumph. What thoroughness? What realism? You went to stop to didn't cut the pages. But what do you want? What do you expect? He snatched the book from me and replaced it hazardly on the shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed the whole library was liable to collapse. Who brought you? he demanded. Or did you just come? I was brought. Most people were brought. Jordan looked at me alteredly, cheerfully, without answering. I was brought by a woman named Roswelt, he continued. Mrs. Claude Roswelt, do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk after a few weeks and I thought it may sober me up to sit in a library. Has it? A little bit, I think. I can't tell you. I've been only here for an hour. Did I tell you about the book? They are real. They are real. You told us. We shook hands with him gravely and went back outdoors. 
They were dancing now on a canvas in a garden. Old men pushing young girls backward in eternal graceful circles, superior couples holding each other tertiously, fashionably and keeping in the corners and a great number of single girls dancing individually and revealing the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or traps. By midnight, the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tender had sung in Italian and a notorious contractor had sung in jazz and between the number peoples were doing stunt all over the garden. A pair of stage twins who turned out to be the girl in yellow did a baby act in costume and champagne was served in glasses bigger than the finger bowls. The moon had risen higher and floating in the sound was a triangle of silver's castle trembling a little to the stiff, tiny drip of baggins on the lawn. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at the table with a man of about my age and a rowdy little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself today. I had taken two finger bowls of champagne and the scene has changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar, he said politely. Weren't you in the first division during the war? Why, yes, I was in the 28th Infantry. I was in the 16th until June 1919. I knew I'd been seeing me somewhere. We talked for a moment about some wet, grey little village in France. Evidently, he lived in this vicinity for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning. Want to go with me, old sport? Just near the shore, around the sound. What time? Any time that suits you best. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a gay time now? She inquired. Much better. I turned again to my new acquaintances. This is an usual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at an invisible hedge in the distance and this man Gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment, he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I exclaimed. Ho, oh, I beg your pardon? I thought you knew old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four to five times in life. It faced or seemed to be faced the whole eternal world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favour. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as if you would like to believe in yourself and assure you that it had perceivedly the impression of you that, at your best, you hoped to convey. Precisely at this moment, it vanished 
and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over thirty, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being observed. Some time before the introduce himself, I would like to go to a strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at that moment, when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, a butler hurried towards him with an information that Chicago was calling him on the wire. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Excuse me? I will rejoin you later. When he was gone, I turned immediately to Georgian, constrained to assure her for my surprise. I had expected that Mr. Gatsby would be florid and corpulent person in his middle years. Who is he? I demanded. Do you know? He is just a man named Gatsby. Where is he from, I mean? And what does he do? Now you started on a subject, she answered with a wan smile. Well, he told me once he was an Oxford man. A dim background started to take shape behind him, but at her next remark it faded away. However, I don't believe it. Why not? I don't know, she insisted. I just don't think he went there. Something in her tone reminded me of another girl. I think he killed a man and had the effect of stimulating my curiosity. I would have accepted without questioning to the information that Gatsby sprang from the swamps of Lewisin or from the lowest east side of New York. That was comprehensible. But young men didn't, at least in my provocational inexperience, I believe that they didn't drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a palace on Long Island Sound. Anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urban distaste for my concrete. And I like large parties. They are so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. There was a boom of bass drum and the voice of orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the chronicle of the garden. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried, at the request of Mr. Gatsby, we are going to play for you Mr. Vladimir Toslet's latest work, which attracted so much attention at the Karjan Hall last May. If you read all the papers, you know they were a big sensation. He smiled with jovial condensation and added, Some sensation? Whereupon everybody laughed. The piece is known, he concluded lustily, as Vladimir Tosford's jazz history of the world. The nature of Mr. Tosov's composition eluded me because, just as it began, my eyes fell on Gatsby, standing alone on the marble steps and looking from one group to another with approving eyes. His tanned skin was drawn attractively tight on his face and his short hair looked as, as if it were trimmed every day. I could see nothing sinister about him. I wondered if the fact that he was not drinking helped me to set him off from this guest, for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the frantic hilarity increased. When the jazz history of the world was over, girls were putting their heads on men's shoulder in a puppyish 
convivable way. Girls were swerving backward, playfully into men's arm, even into groups, knowing that someone would arrest their falls. But no one swerved backward on Gatsby, and no French bob touched Gatsby's shoulder, and no singing quatters were formed with Gatsby's head for one link. I beg your pardon. Gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us. Miss Baker, he inquired. I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me, she exclaimed in surprise. Yes, madam. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment, and followed the butler towards the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dresses, all the dresses. Like sport clothes, there was a jauntiness about her movement, as if she had first learned to walk up upon a golf course on clean, crisp morning. I was alone, and it was almost two. For some time, confused, an interrogating sound has issued from a long, many-windowed room with overhung the terrace, eluding George's undergraduate. who was now engaged in optician conversation with the two chorus girl and who implored me to join him i went inside the large room was full of people one of the girls in yellow was playing the piano and beside her stood a tall red-haired young lady from a famous chorus engaged in a song she had drunk a quantity of champagne and during the course of a song she had decided in emptily that everything was very very sad she was not only singing she was weeping too whenever there was a pause in the song she filled it with gasping broken sob and then took up the lyrics again in a quavering soprano the tear coursed down her cheeks not freely however for when they came into contact with her heavily beaded eyelashes assumed an inky color and pursued the rest of their way in a slow back rituals a humorously suggestion was made by that she sings the note on her face whereupon she threw up her hands sank into the chair and went off in a deep vinous sleep she had a fight with a man who says he is her husband explain a girl at my elbow i looked around most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be her husband even jordan's party the quatres from the east egg were rent assured by decision one of the men were talking with curious intensity to young actress and his wife after attempting to laugh at the situation in a dignified and indifferent way broken down entirely and resorted to flank attacks at intervals She appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed you promised into his ears the reluctant to go home was not confined to wayward men the hall was at present occupied by two deliberately sober men and their highlighting indignant wives the wives were sympathizing with each other in slightly raised voices whenever he sees I'm having a good time. He wants to go home. Never heard anything so selfish in my life. We always the first one to leave. So are we.
Well, we're almost the last tonight, said one of the men sheepishly. The orchestra left half an hour ago. In spite of the wise agreement that such malice was beyond the creditability, the dispute ended in a short struggle and both wives were lifted, kicking into the night. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan party were calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for a moment to shake hands. I've just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered. How long were we in there? Why, about an hour. It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractedly. But I swear that I wouldn't tell it, and here I am tauntizing you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come and see me. Phone book, under the name of Mrs. Signet Hogware, my aunt, she was hurrying off as she talked her brown hand, waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that, on my first appearance, I had said so late and I joined the last of Gatsby's guests who were cluttered around him. I wanted to explain that I hunted for him early in the evening and to apologize for not having known him in the garden. Don't mention it, he enjoyed me eagerly. Don't give it another thought, old sport. The familiar expression held no more familiarity than the hand which reassuring brusted my shoulder. And don't forget me, we are growing up in a hydroplane tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Then, the butler behind his shoulder, Philadelphia wants you on the call, sir. All right in a minute. Tell them that I'll be there. Good night. Good night, sir. He smiled and suddenly, and there seemed to be pleasant significance in having been among the last to go, as if he had despaired in all the time. Good night, old sport. Good night. But, as I walked down the steps, I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from a door, a dozen headlight illuminated a bizarre and tremendous scene. In the ditch beside the road, right side up but violently scrawn of a wheel, rested a new couple which had left Gatsby Drive not two minutes before. The sharp just a wall of wall, acquainted for the detachment of the wheel, which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious coffers. However, as they had left the cars blocking the road, a harsh discounted din from those in the rear had been audible from some time and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. A man in a longer duster had dismounted from the wreck and now stood in the middle of a road, looking from the car to the tire and from the tie to the observer in a pleasant, puzzled way. See, he explained. I went in the ditch. The fact was indefinitely astounding to him, and I recognized first that the usual quality of wonder, and then the man, it was the late patron of Gatsby's library. 
How it happened? He shrugged his shoulder. I know nothing. Whenever about mechanics, he said decisively. But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall? Don't ask me, said Owl Eggs, washing his hands of a whole matter. I know very little about driving next to nothing. It happened, and that's all I know. Well, if you are a poor driver, you ought to try driving at night. But I wasn't even trying, he explained indecisively. I wasn't even trying. An odd hush fell upon the bister. Do you want to commit suicide? You're lucky it was just a wheel, a bad driver and not even trying. You don't understand, explained the criminal. I wasn't driving. That's another man in the car. The shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained awe as the door of the cope swung slowly open. The crowded was now a crowd stepped back involuntarily and when the door has opened wide, there was a ghostly pause. Then, very gradually, part by part, a pale, dangling individual stepped out of the wreck pawing tentatively at the ground with a large, uncertain dancing shoe. Blinded by a glare of headlines and confused by an incertain corning of the horns, the apparition stood swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in a duster. What's matter? he inquired calmly. Did we run out of gas? Look, half a dozen fingers pointed at the amuted wheel. He stared at it for a moment and then looked upward as though he suspected that it had dropped from the sky. It came off, someone explained. He nodded. At first, I didn't notice we'd stop. A pause, then taking a long breath and straightening his shoulder, he remarked in a determined voice. Wonderful! Tell me when there was a gas line station. At least a dozen men, some of them a little better off than him. He was explained to him that a wheel and a car were no longer joined by any physical bond. Back out, he suggested after a moment that he put her in reverse. But the wheels off. He hesitated. No harm in trying, he said. The caterwauling horns has reached a crescento and I turned away and cut across the lawn towards me. I glanced back once. A waver of a moon was shining over Gatsby House, making the night fine as before and surviving the laughter and the sound of a still glowing garden. A sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the window and a great dose, endowing with, with complete isolation the figure of a host who stood on the porch, his hands up in a formal gesture of farewell. Reading over what I have written so far, I see I have given the impression that the event of three nights, several weeks apart, were all the observed me. On a contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer, and until much later, they observed me infinitely less than my personal affairs. Most of the time I worked. In the early morning, the sun threw my shadow westward as I hurried down the wide chasm of Lower New York to the Probability Trust. I knew the other clerks and young bonded salesmen by their first name and launched with them in dark, 
crowded restaurants on little pig sausages and mashed potatoes and coffee. I even had a short affair with a girl who lived in Jersey City and worked in the accounting department. But her brother began throwing mean looks in my direction. So when she went on her vacation in July, I let it blow quietly away. I took dinner usually at the Ales Club. For some reason, it was the gloomiest event of my day. And then I went upstairs to the library and studied investment and securities for a consistent hour. There was generally a few riots around, but they never came into the library. So it was a good place to work. After that, if the night was mellow, I strolled down Madison Avenue past the old Murray Hill Hotel and over 33rd Street to the Pennsylvania Station. I began to live in New York, the Rassy, the adventurous feel of it at night and the satisfaction that the consistent flicker of men and women and missions give to its restless eye. I like to walk up Fifth Avenue and pick up romantic women from the crowd and imagine that in a few minutes I was going to enter into their lives and no one would ever know or disapprove. Sometime in my mind, I follow them to their apartment on the corners of Hidden Street and they turned and smiled back at me before they faded through a door into a warm darkness. At the chanted metropolitan twilight, I felt a haunting loneliness sometimes and felt it in others, poor young clerks who loitered in front of windows waiting until it was the time for a solitary restaurant dinner, young clerks in the dusk wasting the most poignant moments of day and life. At 8 o'clock, when the dark lenses of Fortius were lined five time deep with a throbbing taxi cab bound for the theatre district, I felt a sling in my heart. Forms leaned together in the taxi as they waited and voice sang and there was laughter from unheard jokes and lightened cigars made unintellectual circle inside. Imagining that, I too was hurrying towards gaiety and sharing their intimate excitement. I wished them all. For a while, I lost a sight of Jordan Baker and then in midsummer, I found her again. At first, I was flattered to go places with her because she was a golf champion and everyone knew her name. Then it was something more. I wasn't actually in love, but I felt a sort of tender curiosity. The bored, hauntier face that she turned into a world concealed something more affectionation conceal and something eventually, even though they don't in the beginning and one day I found what it was. When we were on a house party together in Warwick, she left a borrowed card out in the rain with the top down and then lied about it and suddenly I remembered the story about her that he had elucidated me that night at Daisy's house. At first, a big golf tournament, there was a row that nearly reached the newspaper, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie in the semi-final round. The thing approached the proportion of a scandalous, then died away. 
a candy retracted his statement and the only other witnesses admitted that he might have been mistaken the incident and the name had reminded together in my mind jordan baker instinctively avoided clever shrewd men and now i saw that this was a beautiful because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from a code would be thought impossible she was incurable dishonest she wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage and given this unwillingness i suppose she had begun dealing in circumstances when she was very young in order to keep that cool isolant smile turned to a world and yet satisfy the demands of her hand jointy body it made no differences to me dishonesty in a woman is a thing you'll never blame deeply i was casually sorry and then i forgot it was on that same house party that we had a crucial conversation about driving a car it started because she passed so close to some workmen that a flender flicked a button on one man's coat you're a rotten driver i protested either you ought to be more careful or you ought to drive at all i am careful no you're not well other people are she said lightly what's that got to do with it they'll keep out of my way she insisted it takes two to make many accidents suppose you met somebody just as careless as yourself i hope i'll never will she answered i hate careless people that's why i like you her gray sun-strained eyes started straight in her head but she had deliberately shifted out relationship and for a moment i thought i loved her but i'm slowly thinking and full of interior rules that acts as a break on my desires and i knew that first i had to get myself definitely out of the tangle back home i'd been writing letters once a week and singing them love nick and all i could think of my is when the certain girl played tennis a faint mustache of perspiration appeared on up on the upper lips of me nevertheless there was a vague understanding that had to be tactically broken off before i was free everyone suspect himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues and this is mine i'm the one of a few honest people that i've ever known